This is an audio sermon recorded at Highway 71 Church of Christ in Alma, Arkansas. We are Christians seeking to worship God in spirit and in truth. We would love for you to worship with us at 1030 on Sunday mornings at 1808 Highway 71 North in Alma, Arkansas. Haggai is right between Zephaniah and Zechariah. And I kind of say that smile on my face, tongue in cheek, because it's not a book we study very often. And those minor prophets are not called that because they're insignificant, but just because they're shorter books. And Haggai is one of those. There's only 38 verses, two chapters. It's the shortest book in the Old Testament besides Obadiah. But it's a valuable book, and it's a, it's a book of, of a significant importance to us when we think about uh, the prophet and what the challenge was for the people during this time. We'll, we'll talk about that in a moment. You're a unique, unique people. Uh, we have a unique relationship, a family of Christ, the brothers and sisters in the Lord, are unique in every way. It, you know, we've been away from each other now because of this silly COVID thing for a couple years. I've not been here, Nancy's not been here, and we've not seen you, but just like it was yesterday when I walked in the door, there was family. There were people who I felt loved by and who I love. And we share a lot of similar things. More specifically, we, we share our relationship with the Lord, we share the relationship because of the Lord that other people in the world just don't understand and don't enjoy. Yeah. There would be a good many people after having been gone away from somebody for a couple of years that would find it kind of a strain to come back and to get to see people and reunite. But that certainly wasn't the case here this morning. Good to see you. Sorry it's been so long. Haggai is a is an interesting prophet. Uh, he's a prophet, really, that was sent by God to, to, to boom out or vanguard one specific message, build the temple. We'll see that in just a moment. When I was thinking about this text, I got to thinking about the man, Haggai, the, the, the prophet, I think the prophet on priorities. That's really his message. What better time at the end of a year than to, for us to, to think about our priorities. I got to thinking back in my business days about a, uh, a book I read called First Things First by Stephen Covey. Now, most of you may not, younger people even know who Stephen Covey is, but uh, he was pretty popular during my day. And he, he tells of the story of a of a time management expert who goes into a, a business class of students and he pulls out this large, like a fishbowl, if you will, jar, open mouth jar. And he takes the jar and he fills it with fist-sized rocks. And then he asks the, the students, can I put any more in this? Anything else, else in this or is the jar full? And immediately there was a resounding, it's full. And so he reached down and he picked up a bag of sand. And he, no, a bag of gravel, I'm sorry. And he put a little gravel 
on top of the rock until it fell in between the cracks and kind of looked like it filled the bowl up again. And he said, is it full now? Well, they got, they got the pitcher now, so they said no. And he said, you're right. And he reached down and he grabbed a bowl of sand and he filled that, our bag of sand, and he filled that bowl up with sand until it filtered in between the rocks and the gravel. Is it full now? And again, the, the student said no, and he picked a pitcher of water up, and he poured the water into the bowl until it topped out, and they all were feeling pretty smart about themselves. And so he said, well, what's the, what's the lesson? What's the point of the illustration in all this? And one of the students uh, ventured by saying, no matter how full your schedule, if you try hard, you can always fit more in. <laughs> no, speaker said, that, that's not the point. The point is, if you don't put the rocks in first, you'll never get the rest in. And I would say to you that we have a problem with rocks. We're challenged sometimes. Maybe you don't have any of this, but maybe you don't have any projects at home that are unfinished. Maybe you finish every project that you do. Maybe you've read every book from start to finish and don't have one you've stopped in the middle that you sure would like to finish. Maybe you don't have a cabinet that you started working on refinishing, but you never did get it done. Or a car that you decided you were going to rebuild or work on and you haven't got that done either. Or maybe you've got a a file cabinet at home that needs to be gone through before tax time and and you know your wife has asked you to do that for the last few years and this year I hope maybe I might get around to doing that. All of us have projects that you know we might say are unfinished. Well if you have that kind of mentality and you're thinking about that kind of thing and you're thinking now about some project that's unfinished you would like to complete then you know what Haggai was writing to these people about. That's exactly what was going on. Their priorities had gotten skewed. And Haggai needed to come back and was sent by God for the specific reason of trying to help them to understand this point. Haggai was the, what we call the first post-exilic prophet. That is, he came after the exile. Daniel and Ezekiel would have been prophets of the exile. And there had been no prophecy whatsoever after Daniel and Ezekiel until Haggai appears. And then Zechariah soon will follow them. Both they were contemporaries with each other. His name means festival or joyous one. Interesting, isn't it, how all these names of these people had some kind of uh, serious significant meaning to it. Uh, the theme of the book, as I said, is clearly build the temple. Look at chapter 1 and verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. And then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Agai the prophet. And if you, and if you skip on down uh, to verse uh, 10, therefore the heavens above you withdrew, withheld the, uh, the dew and earth has withheld its produce and I have called for a drought on the, that's not the verse I want, I want, uh, hang on a minute, verse 8, uh, look at verse 8, go up to the hills, there you go, go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. So there's the the reason or the theme 
of the book of Haggai. And we could just stop and say, okay, did they get it done? Well, we know uh, that they do actually get the temple rebuilt. If you look at Ezra chapter 1 through 6, and we don't have time, obviously, to do that, you would get a, a good history of what's happening prior to Haggai's intervention. And we'd know a little bit more about what was going on. We may actually read a passage or two from there. If you look at Ezra chapter 1, verses 2 through 3, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord. If you know anything about history, you know about Cyrus's decree then. In Ezra chapter 2 and verse 64, we see the whole assembly together was 42,360 besides their male and female servants, of whom there were 7,337, and they had 200 male and female singers. So we know that after the children of, of God had went into the Babylonian captivity in 586 B.C., that after that had happened, and they were in their 70 years, it was prophesied by Jeremiah and other prophets, then they were released from their captivity, and Cyrus makes a decree. And they come out of the Babylonian captivity in three waves. And the first wave that we read about is here. And Zerubbabel comes out to do what God felt like was first and most important, and that was to restore or build the temple, the worship place of God. So you got three waves coming out. you got, you got what, will, what will soon be Ezra, but first is Zerubbabel. Ezra being the priest who writes down the law and then preaches the law. And Ezra prepared him to seek the law of the Lord and to do it. Ezra was a priest. He was a scribe. He wrote down the word of God. Before you could have the written word of God, and you had to have a place for people to gather to worship God. The temple was of major importance to God. It's the place where people gathered to glorify and honor God. And then you would have after, after Zerubbabel and after you had Ezra leave in the second wave, you would have Nehemiah in the third wave to restructure or build and restructure the walls, the walls of Jerusalem. You might recall that story. So three waves. What's most important to God? Well, the temple is. It's the place where people come to meet and honor and glorify God. So that's what we find happening here. The book of Haggai then, as Haggai uh, appears in chapter 1 and verse 1 in the second year of Darius, uh, the king in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of uh, Shiltiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. So he's identified there. It's interesting as you look at the time frame here because, and we'll do that, we're, we're going to see in this particular book in Haggai, he's going to be very specific and succinct. We know to the day when this occurred. The people, when they came out of captivity, we can back into it, it was 538 B.C., and this is 520 B.C. in this particular period of time. And we are told by Haggai in the second year of Darius the king in the sixth month on the first day of the month. So we're specifically told Darius the first, this is the date, this is the time, this is the month. And I think it's interesting is that we look at that, those dates, how important it is to the point that is going to be made by Haggai. Look at the dates with me for a moment. 
I just want you to see it. So we see in chapter 1 and verse 1, uh, in the second year of Darius the king on the first day of the sixth month. That's September 1st, 1520. We know that. History validates that through Cyrus the one and through the dates that we could find even recorded in the Bible. And then 23 days later, if you look at chapter 1 and verse 15, um, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. That's 23 days later. That's the month of September. Now I know that because the, the calendar, the Persian calendar, unlike our calendar, doesn't start in January. It starts in April. So you, you've got this then being the month of September, not too far from the time in which we currently are in our calendar year. And then so you, you got a third date uh, that's mentioned in chapter 2 and verse uh, one, or in the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. So uh, that would be October 21st, nearly 30 days later. And then again, in chapter 2 and verse 10, on the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. That's November 24th, uh, 520 B.C. And on the same day, there's a second message. Look at chapter 2 and verse 20. Then the word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. And you add all this up and you get a total of nearly four months. Now I didn't come here to Alma, to the church here today, talk to you about these dates. But there is something significant in all of it. And I want to make sure that we, we kind of just know that that's there. And when I come back and talk about it later on, you'll know why I gave you those dates. Primarily, there are four messages that are spoken by Haggai. Now, we're not going to spend a great deal of time on those messages. We just don't have the time this morning to do it. But I want you to know that messages or oracles are often referred to when these prophets spoke them. And see, in each one of these dates that I just gave you, it's the beginning of that message. We'll see that message being told by, by Haggai. And so those four messages that we, that we read about and then the obstacles that occur as a result of the messages. So if you had a prophet during this time, Haggai being specific with him, and Haggai was one of the few prophets like Zechariah was telling Nancy coming down this morning that actually got to see his prophecy being realized because he, he, he was there talking or preaching to them about getting busy in rebuilding the temple, and the temple was rebuilt, and he got to see it happen. So did Zechariah. Oftentimes, prophets would prophesy things they didn't get to see occur, actually occur, like Jeremiah or Isaiah, some of the major prophets that we're familiar with. But they get to see that happen. And in these four messages, um, in message, the, mess, the first message, in chapter 1, verses 1 through 10, he talks to them about uh, their present distress, um, that they had a distress that had resulted from putting their own business before the business of the Lord's. And what was the Lord's business? The building of the house, building of the temple. Look at, look at we can't read all this, but look at chapter 1 and verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Now what do these people say? They say oftentimes what we say. I don't have time. This really isn't the time for me. I don't know when, 
But I'll get around to getting it done at some point in time. That's exactly what I was talking about at the beginning about having projects that are unfinished. So what does Haggai do? He rebukes them for that. Gets on to them pretty good, in fact, about not having their priorities right. You're, you're living in paneled houses, he says in verse 4. Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? I mean, does that not speak to us in our own priorities sometimes about maybe putting the sand in first and not having it, things done in the appropriate way is how we look at life? We get so busy and so caught up with things in our life. I loved our prayer this morning. It's just easy for us to become captivated by that which is going on around about us. Uh, the traffic. The noise. And the traffic and the noise just overwhelm us sometimes and we get lost in all of it. We're so busy. Uh, particularly this, this time of life for many of you. Because I can look and see all these young people out here and people that are certainly younger than me and you're you're raising your families, and you're trying to find a way and figure out how you're going to put kids in college and pay for all that, and you're going to do this, and how are you going to do that, and trying to keep mama or the husband happy at home, and trying to stay up with all the odd jobs that need to be done, uh, keep up with the sports stuff that's going on, or the musical things that are going on with your children, or whatever it is you decide to do for entertainment or relaxation. And it's not, it's not hard for us to get our priorities out of sorts. I want us to use this occasion this morning to look at what's going on with Haggai and these people and understand how easy that can become us. We live in our paneled houses. You know, we've got ourselves taken care of. Now remember, it's 16 years since the time that they come out of, uh, into Jerusalem, out of Babylonian captivity, in this first wave, they've had 16 years to begin building the temple and they got a little part of it done Haggai tells us later that they had the foundation laid and they had done a, a, a few things here and there regarding the altars and then they had just stopped now we know from the book of Ezra if we went back and looked at all that a lot of that happened because of oppression that was coming to them at that time in chapter 4 from the Samaritans but irregardless of why it was happening what Haggai says to him no matter what you might say in a way of an excuse, you're living in your paneled houses. You've got nice homes. You found time to do this. How about doing what God is asking you to do, requiring you to do? It gives real meaning to Matthew 6, verse 33. Seeking first the kingdom of God. It becomes a true illustration of that. Because this, this is the busyness of people. These are, it's not that these were bad people. They're people who, for whatever reason, got caught up in the busyness of doing what we have to do day in and day out to take care of our families. Is it wrong to have a house? No. Is it wrong to take care of our children? No. Is it wrong for us to, to look for things uh, that will make us content and happy in this life? Absolutely not. In fact, Jesus tells us we should live this life abundantly. We, we should look forward to being able to take care of those things. But we've got to be careful we don't let our priorities get confused. That we don't go too far with what it is that we are demanding for ourselves. In fact, it's interesting because uh, he, he tells us uh, in this particular text in, in uh, verse 6, look at he says, 
the, in the futility of the situation they were in, living in their panel houses and their priorities being skewed. He says, consider your ways. We'll talk more about that phrase in a moment. But consider your ways. Listen to what he says. You have sown much and harvested little. Get this. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does not does so to put them into a bag with holes. You can never really have enough. We're never really satisfied. That, and that's the people of this time. They're living in panel houses. They can't be satisfied with what they're getting, what they have. Now, we're going to find out what happens in all that. Because what happens in all that is God brings about a drought. And he takes away some of the things that these people had that we might refer to as wealth. Now, I know that we have to be careful about attaching the idea to the fact that if we're spiritually prosperous, then we're going to be rich, too, financially. I don't think Scripture teaches that at all. We could spend some time on that, but we won't. But I just simply want to say to us, there is a sense in which we need to understand that we should not expect for God to produce for us when we're doing nothing for him. I mean, holy is as holy does. And we need to understand our responsibility to, to go out and do the things that God demands. If you love me, keep my commandments. That's what Jesus said. So we need to do that. Even in the smaller things. But certainly as it relates to our priorities. And so that's the encouragement we should get from that. Message number two. After we get through with this, your present distress has resulted from putting your own business before the Lord's business. And that, of course, is in the building of the temple. And it's far overdue, Haggai says. Message two, he says, do not let your uncompromising, or unpromising rather, beginnings discourage you and keep you from the work of building the temple. That is, th there is a glory about the temple that is what it is because God's in it. And he, he, it's interesting because in this text in chapter two, verses one through nine, um, as he reminds them, it's time for them to, to, to understand and appreciate the value of this temple that they're building. It's compared to Solomon's temple. And in this particular text, without spending an awful lot of time on it, really what he's trying to help them to understand, Haggai, is this. That it doesn't matter about all the glamour and all of the gold and, and all of the beauty of Solomon's temple. It really is, it doesn't matter. As long as God's in it, then we have exactly what we are trying to accomplish and to do. And this is the temple they are told to build. Quit and get caught up. Quit reminiscing. Quit looking back at the good old days and understand that those things are holding you back and keeping you from growing and being what you want to be. Let me just relate to you this way. Paul said in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 13 that we are to do what? I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do. What does he tell us to do? Forgetting those things which are behind and pressing on toward the mark of the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Listen to me, folks. What Paul is trying to help us to understand is the point that Haggai is trying to make as well. There are certain things in our past that if we hang on to them that will keep us from moving forward or keep us from growing successes and failures. 
And what Paul is, is introducing in Philippians chapter 3 is he looks at his own life. It's almost as like he's pounding on a pulpit to me. This one thing I do. He gets real microscopic with it. He gets real specific with it. It's a rock's first thing for him. And he's, he's trying to help us understand, the reader to understand, the church of Philippi to understand, that in order for you to be able to be what you want to be, where you can finally get this reward that he's talking about, the only way that's going to happen is for us to forget some of our past. That's, that's, that's for Ross. That certainly applies to me. There are things in my life that I wish I hadn't done. Certain things I wish I hadn't been involved or engaged in. But there are also certain successes that I've had in life where maybe somebody's been converted or something's happened spiritually as a result of effort made on my part. As humble as I may want to be about that, that could have happened. But what Paul is trying to help us to understand is that those kind of things, if you, if you hang on to them and you, you embrace those too much, they're going to keep you from your goal. They're going to keep you from going. And we don't want that to happen. And apparently during the time of Haggai, there was comparative information, things being done. And what Haggai is, is going to tell them is don't let those past failures or successes, the memories of the, the glamour of Solomon's temple compared to the temple of today, don't let those Keep, don't let those things keep you from growing and being what you ought to be in your relationship to God. More could be said. Message number three, uh, your work in the past has yielded few results, but from now on, he says it's going to be blessed. Now, that's important to these people. There's actually two messages on the same day here I mentioned in these uh, third and fourth message. But in this particular situation, uh, Haggai uses two questions to confirm the unholiness of the people. We all sin. Paul's sure of the glory of God. Haggai is broken up in two different sections. The first chapter is in rebuke, and the second is to promote or encourage. And he's trying to help the people to understand not only are there some things wrong in your life, you need to be encouraged by some things. And we'll see that as we continue on. But as he's discussing to them uh, about this the once cursed person or people who are now uh, going to be blessed, he rises, he gives two questions to illustrate his point about their unholiness. Uh, in verse 12, he says in chapter 2, he says, If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? And the priest answered, Well, no. Then Haggai asked another question. He says in verse 13, If someone who is unclean, by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? And the priest answered and said, it does become unclean. Verse 15, Haggai summarizes what has just occurred in, in, involving those questions and he answers and said, so is it with the, this people and with this nation before me. That would be the nation of Judah. The, those are referring returning back to Jerusalem, rather. He declares the Lord and soul with every work of their hands, and what they offer there is unclean. Now then consider from this day onward. And what he's trying to help them to understand is that um, when you're not getting the results that you want, uh, and they weren't, <laughs> if, you, if you see the text and what he's talking about, uh, in fact, if you look at verse 17, 
it says, I struck you in all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hell, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. That's an unholy people. No matter what God took for them, they continued to live in their panel houses and continued to, to de-emphasize God in their life. And he's trying to help them to understand that's got to change in order for you to get the blessings of God. And he gives them that promise, by the way, toward the end of this text. Message 4, uh, again on the same day in chapter 2, verses 20 through 23, he basically tells them to take comfort from the fact that God will destroy the nations or his enemies uh, around them and that a leader has been chosen in Zerubbabel, who is a governor at this time, but also a descendant of David. And the promise is being made when it refers to the signet of the ring that's messianic in nature. Uh, that, you know, the promises of the leader that you have being the right one for you and leading you through all this, being chosen of God, uh, should be something that gives you comfort. So those are the four messages. More could be said about them, but I don't want to use up all my time on that and not be able to hammer down on this main principle because it's really a one-word principle. The four obstacles involved, and I, I like looking at it this way, if you look at verse 2 of chapter 1, uh, the people basically say this is not the right time. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Nothing's been said about that. But is that us? We need for you to go do this. Well, I, I'm busy with this right now. Uh, we need you to go visit so-and-so. Well, yeah, but you know, I, I got this to do right now. Uh, need for you to get in a daily Bible reading schedule. Well, I'd like to do that, but I'm too busy with this right now. And then before long, you're, you're gone through most of your life and you've never... Can you imagine meeting God at judgment and telling him how much you love him and when he asks you this question, what will your answer be? Did you ever read my book from cover to cover? What are you going to say? If you've never taken the time to read the Bible. I'm not trying to shame anybody. I do want you to think about the question, though. It should be important to us. And it, 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 it certainly applies to the, the people's thinking as it relates to what Haggai is having to say here in chapter 1, verse 2. The people say the time has not yet come. And then the second obstacle, the people's discouragement. Uh, and that is the, the temple that you're talking about us rebuilding is inferior to Solomon's temple. He says in chapter 2, verse 3, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not nothing in your eyes? Again, the temple where God is at is sufficient in and of itself. One of the things that's sad to me is that we think we have to build these huge edifices. And we think because we've done that, there's going to be some significant change in the presence of God. I mean... You can be underneath the shade tree in assembly and God will be just as much there as he will be any other place. And that's certainly the point of significance and emphasis being placed in this particular text. And then number three, the, the third obstacle, the people's unholiness that we talked about, this nation is unclean. And him saying, so it is with his people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so with every work of their hands, and what they offer there is unclean. And then the fourth obstacle that was there, the people's doubt. Um, their doubt being what about nations and the evil people that are involved. And our leader itself in chapter 2 
in verse 23 in which the enemies were promised to be destroyed and we see the messianic prophecy. All right, so that's, that's the book. That's the introduction, if you will, really, when it gets down to it, about it. But the application's quick. And I think it's important, though. And I, I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about the text again, because you've heard it. You've, you, you know what we've, we've read and we've seen in these two chapters, in these 38 verses. A good bit of it we've read. So the first point of application is this, and if I had PowerPoint, you'd see this right now. My fault that I didn't bring it, but I will next time if you ask me to come back. Use that phrase, consider our ways. I want you to, if you don't, in, in your Bible, literally mark that with a yellow marker. Do it with your mental marker. Because that phrase is used five times. Well, why in two chapters, in 38 verses, but Haggai want to use the term consider. Consider our ways actually is used twice. But the word consider is used five times. And you see it being used in relationship to, to, to God's cause. That is that it's, it's not the people's right to necessarily question God about what needs to be done and when it needs to be done. God is God and they are not. The problem with the people during this time is that they didn't obey. It really, in a small way, almost in an insignificant way, it really had nothing to do with building four walls called the temple. It had everything to do with acquiescing to God's will. If God says this is what he wants done, then that's what needs to be done. And the people didn't need to be questioning that. And then after having it happen, to wait 23 days after they're told by the prophet what it is they are to do, to go collect the wood and build this thing done, and, and to wait 23 days? I mean, if God come to us and told us through a prophet that we needed to go do something, you think there would be some angst about that. that we'd get up and go get busy doing it. But unfortunately, with people, it's the tendency of most of us to begin to make excuses and to be a little bit tolerant toward our own laziness. We're not as quick as we should be, is what I'm trying to say, in reacting to the needs of people and those things that are around about us sometimes. And specifically with these people, it was the building of the temple. But what is it for us? Well, Haggai would say, consider your ways. And that word consider, consider your ways, is interesting. You may have a marker in your particular Bible that says this. But it means, literally in the Hebrew, to set your heart. It's not just the matter if you look at Webster's definition, which I've got in my notes, but no sense going through it, because you know what it means. If I were to tell you to consider something, you would put a real shallow meaning behind that. To you, that would mean give it some thought. That's not what Haggai is saying. Haggai is saying that you need to understand that God's ways are not man's ways. And when you look at it as what's being requested of you, you need to set your heart to it and get it done. Get after it. And so I'm suggesting that on this day, uh, at the end of this year, that we consider our, our ways. And if there's something that's been left undone, I'm talking about spiritually, it's time to get after it. You know, let's, let's get ourselves busy doing what it is God would have us to do, and let's not be offering excuses for it. Let's not be waiting 23 days 
Let's not be lethargic about it. Let's be responsive to it. And it's time to do that. Number two, not only not to make excuses, considering our way, but uh, to get our priorities in order. Uh, enough said about that. Put the rocks in first. Um, whose house is more important? Is it time for your, you yourselves to dwell in panel houses while this house lies desolate? Haggai 1.4. Forget about the idea of houses for a moment and just think about priorities. About the seeking first the kingdom of God idea. I mean, that should settle things for us, folks. If we're people that are subject to God and God calls us to do something, we, sh- we should want to do that. I mean, anybody here under- understand or misunderstand what this means? If I say we're number one, what does that mean? It means we're not number two, we're number one. And sometimes we need to... to to understand and appreciate the value of putting God first. It's not difficult, it's not challenging, and it should be settling to us. When it comes time to worshiping God, we're, we're the people of God are worshiping Him because that comes first. That's just settled. That's where we're going to be on the first day of the week. We're going to be here together, we're going to be taking care of the Lord's Supper, we're going to be doing it because our brother prayed for vertical reason and horizontal reason because it's what God told us to do and because we like being with each other and we're edified as a result and that should be the end of it and unfortunately for many it's just not the case it's not just that it should settle things involving our marriage relationship I mean God's told us what we ought to do in the husband and wife relationship let's seek God first and all that let's let God settle that as to the relationship between a husband and a wife. And we get it completely wrong, fellows, by the way, when we think the idea of submission for a woman means she needs to be, you know, uh, in total submission to us at all times. When the actual idea behind it is, if you look at Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 5, is that we are to be submitting ourselves one to another. It's just something we do as children of God. We give up ourselves in relationship to one another. We're in a service type of relationship. It ought not be a challenge for either one of us. But the point being made here is it should settle for us how it is we ought to have our relationships in our husband and wife relationship and our children parent relationship and anything that has to do with those things that came from God. These people were enjoying a level of comfort and they're being condemned by God not because of those comforts because they had misplaced their priorities. Look at what he says in chapter 1, verse 8. Go up to the mountains, bring wood, and rebuild the temple that I may be pleased with it and be glorified. So here's the real deal. In Luke 6, 46, Jesus asks this question, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? We just struggle with that. We struggle with the fundamentals oftentimes, not you, us, all together. We struggle with some of the simplest requests made by God as it relates to who we are and what we ought to be doing. And we need to make sure we don't have that perception of God in our relationship with him. That the glorifying God part of it comes in the action we do. I'm, I'm all for the concept of faith. But there's too many verses and too many passages talking about our works and our good works together that would allow me to disengage from the idea that what I do doesn't matter to God. It does matter. What I don't do 
does matter to God. And what God and what Haggai the prophet is trying to help the people here understand is that in order for you to be pleasing to God, you got to get up off your knees, you got to get off the stump, and you got to go to the mountains and bring wood and rebuild the temple. There's work to do. Isn't it interesting when you read about Nehemiah in that third wave? We can read in chapter 1. He begins almost immediately upon hearing the sad news about the fallen walls of Jerusalem. He goes to God in prayer. For four months, he prays. Then what does he do? I'll tell you what he does. He gets up off his knees and he goes to work. He goes to see the king. He finds out what it is he needs to do in order to get the materials he needs to get. The king writes him letters to introduce him. He sends him on his way. When Nehemiah comes to the city, first thing he does is he gets off his animal and he goes down and inspects the walls because that's what you do after you pray to God is you go to work and you get busy doing what it is you do. And the phraseology that the hand of God was with him is extremely important, but so is the idea that the hand of theirs was engaged or involved with God in making and providing the productivity that needed to be done. So it's important for us to understand uh, the value of our own hard work and acquiescing to God in these things. Action matters. But the final point that needs to be made is that we need to remember our dependence upon God. Actually, i got one other one than this. So consider your ways in relation to God's position. Remember that he is God and I am not. He says in this passage in chapter 1, verse 6, you have sown much but harvest little. You eat, but there is not enough to be satisfied. You drink, but there is not enough to become drunk. You put on clothing, but no one's warm enough. And he who earns, earns wages to put into a purse with holes. It's a picture of futility. It's a time for them to understand that God is in control and that he really can remove or take from us if he decides to do that, if he chooses to do that. And where will we be in our relationship with him when that happens? The people here were concerned. I know that because if you look at uh, later on in, in chapter 2, uh, he asked the question, look at verse 18, consider from this day onward from the 24th day of the month since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider... Is the seed yet in barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing, but from this day on I will bless you. You've not been getting the, what you expected. You, you've been thinking that if you work hard, there ought to be harvest involved. If There ought to be plenty to drink. There ought to be plenty to eat. There, but when you get money, it's like your purse has holes in it. And why is that? Because God's trying to bring them to the realization that there is work that needs to be done. And until you do it, don't expect to receive my blessings. I just think there's a lesson in that for us. And uh, it's important for us to see what these people, I think, finally did see. And again, I think it's worthwhile to mention that they do finally come around and the temple is finally built. Now, I don't believe in the, the idea of prosperity gospel, what some falsely preach today, that the more you give, the richer you become. I don't believe that. I don't believe Scripture teaches that. But I do think it's important for us to understand the importance of our contribution to things if we expect God to bless us. Final point, lesson to is obey the work of the Lord. Consider your ways involving this. Do you really revere God? I want you to see something here. It's important to me anyway. He says, are you cons- then Zerubbabel, son of... Uh, 
Nancy kept trying to go over this guy's name with me, and I don't know if I'm saying this right, Shealtiel, Joshua, son of Josedek, the high priest, and the whole remnant of, of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the message of the prophet Haggai because the Lord their God had sent him. Now I want you to see the last part of that verse, the last five words or so. And the people feared the Lord. I don't ever want us to miss the fact that in combination, fear and obedience, how they work together. I am bothered by the fact that um, people try to water down the idea of fearing God. Uh, I fear him. I believe that he's going to do just exactly what he says he's going to do. I mean, to fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole of man, Ecclesiastes 12, verse 13, what does that mean to you? Well, to me, it compels me to, to, to be the kind of person that involves or engages in God's word on a constant basis, to be just consumed with it. Uh, to me, it's everything. And I think what he's trying to help these people to understand as it related to the temple finally getting built and the good results finally occurring, that people obey God best when they understand and respect who God is and they fear him for who he is. I mean, I love God, and I know that he's a God of love, but he's also a God of wrath. And we need to understand that he'll punish us for unfaithfulness. So fear and obedience work hand in hand. Look at what 1 and verse 12, by their obedience they showed reverence for the Lord. That's it. That's the idea, I think, behind it. Reminds me of Acts 10, 34, and 35, uh, as just as Peter told the household of Cornelius, and Peter began to speak, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. So God calls us to fear him. So that's the lesson. The work, build a house. And what? What does he tell us? Build a house in verse 8, and I will take pleasure in it, and I will be glorified. And I think you and I have a responsibility to serve the Lord even today. And I will say this. It's not easy. It's work. I, I, I'm 70 years old. And I'll be the first to admit that you can't be casual about your Christianity. You can't be casual about your relationship with God. It's got to matter to you. And it's, it's got to matter to us in the sense that when priorities need to be made, we, we make them. We don't make excuses. We just rearrange priorities to serve God. And I would say to you, don't let anybody stand in your way with this. Don't put your will in front of God's will, but to serve him instead with reverence and putting him first in all things. Or make sure you put the rocks in first. I think that's uh, the idea. So here we are at the end of a year. Uh, new year about to start, not very long. And the question is, are you really seeking first the kingdom of God in your life? And I don't know about you, but new beginnings are good. I mean, it allows you to go back and fix things. Now, don't let the burdens of the past tie you down either. I mean, I think that's the encouragement Paul's making. Here's the Apostle Paul. He's talking about the crown of life and saying, you know, forget those things which are behind. I mean, there's sometimes you just got to let things go. You got to give it to God. Now, if you've got sin in your life, you need to repent of it. Don't get me wrong. You need to get that corrected. You do that with prayer if you're a child of God. If there's sin in your life and you're not a child of God and you're not a Christian, 
I know the brethren here, I know I would like to help you this morning. Uh, there's just nothing like being in a covenant relationship with God. And when God speaks, it matters, and it should matter to you and to me. And he's given us just a real simple plan on how it is that we can be in a right relationship with him. And you can imagine how it must have been when Peter came to preach that sermon in Acts chapter 2, having himself been one who followed Christ from afar off, who had denied Christ on three different occasions, and not very long after that. I've thought about this so many times. It wasn't long until Pentecost comes, and he's standing in front of these people, and he's preaching the gospel. Now, he knows that his Lord has just been crucified for preaching and teaching. And here's Peter, the one who denied him, who's put those things behind him and is now pressing on. He's standing before a group of people knowing full well that the very sermon he preached might result in his death. But he preached it anyway, didn't he? And he must have done it with some amount of ability because the question was then asked by those who were in attendance, what must we do to be saved? Peter told them. He charged them. This man, this man of Nazareth, a man approved of God, you killed him. God raised him up. And it made some difference to those people. I'm asking you this morning, where are your priorities in the answering of that question, what must I do to be saved? And I'm asking you to put your rocks in first and make sure that you've got yourself in the right relationship with God. Don't miss heaven. It's just, it's going to be too great. And you need to be there, and I need to be there. And can you imagine what it's going to be like? The sea is no longer going to separate us from God. It's referred to in the book of Revelation. There we're going to sit among the greats, the Bible greats, the Bible heroes, people I've looked up to and admired all my life. And there we're going to be, right at the throne of God, singing praises to him. No end. No end. We just keep singing. We just keep loving. We just keep enjoying. No memories of the bad past. Nothing but great and good. And there we are with people, only people, who are holy and are revering God. And that's exactly where we'll be if we'll, if we'll serve and honor him. So get your rocks in first as it relates to your priorities. We hope you have enjoyed this message recorded at Highway 71 Church of Christ. If you have questions concerning this message or would like to set up a study, please call 479 647 Five, eight. May God bless you.